Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello. And today we are talking to Lawrence M. Schoen, the author of the new book, Farce. Welcome to the show. And this is uh, this is from Tor Books, is it? It is indeed. Ah, yes. Okay. We like Tor Books. Tor Books is uh, Tor Books is good people. I'm rather fond of them at the moment. So, since we've uh, spoken with you last, your new book is out, and it looks like a, a bar. Well, it's a barn burner because there's there's elephants in the barn, and they can't get out. So, I hope the barn actually isn't burning. Yeah. But, um, yes, the, the response just in this past week has been, uh, insane. Um, I keep, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, but all I see is one more amazing review after another. And I can't afford to have all these people on my payroll. So, uh, they must really <laughs> like the book. They do indeed. And it's easy to see why. Um, I have not read the, uh, the Buffalito books. Well, you should because they're fun. Yes, they're fun in the way that the Hoka books were fun. It's sort of the, oh, what a lovely thing to say! I I loved uh, the Paul Anderson and Gordon R. Dixon's uh, Hoka novels and stories. Well, because there's a you know one human who's who's involved with this very alien species, and he's kind of come to come to be their you know eventually their their you know main. Oh, I'm stammering pretty badly here. He uh, he was the planetary plenipotentiary. Yeah, and uh, say that fast. I mean, I'm, I'd buy I'm that not for even going to. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fish out of water who winds up uh, being their main champion, and those are marvelous books. I haven't I haven't thought about those in a long time, but they were great, weren't they? Though I wish they were still in print. Somebody should bring them into print. The reason I brought it up is because uh, Susan compared uh, your. Um, Susan said that Barsk is not like the. Uh, it's not the not Buffalo- a lot like yeah. the Buffalito books. Not at all. It's not a more mature work, but uh, you know, and I believe it was David Gerald who said your first million words are just practice. <laughs> I and and I agree with that. And Barsk is definitely I'm well I'm well past my first million. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can see the change in 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 my process and 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 my 
I won't go so far as to say talent. Uh, the quality of my writing, um, looking at from the first novel in that series to the second novel, uh, to the more recent novellas, uh, which for the last three years have each earned a Nebula nomination. So they're getting better in that, in some sense, but, but the tone is very different. Those are, those, the amazing comrade stories and, and, and novels are, are, um, intended to be humorous, intended to be very light, palate cleansers, if you will. Mm-hmm. Barsk is, there are, there are some humorous and lighthearted scenes in Barsk, but, um, it is a dark book in a lot of ways, and it deals with some weighty issues that uh, I, I'd never come anywhere near with any of the Conroy stuff. And I, I think it's like an order, at least an order of magnitude better than anything I've written before. I'm, I'm really happy with it. Well, I guess it's automatically darker when, you know, many of the more interesting characters and important characters in the book are dead. <laughs> well, see, I would disagree there because death doesn't have the same sinister specter when when you can so casually talk to the departed. Not to the Fant, and certainly not to uh, Yor- Jorl or Yorl. Jorl, and Jorl. I also pronounce it Font, but that's okay. Font, I'm terribly sorry. Elephant. 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 Elefante. Well, I, I actually designed a writing system for them. Oh. And and created a typeface, so there is a Font font. Oh. oh. Now, is this and, like... No, and is and this to like my delight, a... Tor actually put it in the book. Is this like nose prints and... Things like that. I don't know what that means. Well, you know, like uh, drawing ink ink marks with their nubs. No, no. Actually, it's it's based yeah. on the idea that somewhere on Barsk there is a plant called elephant bamboo, and these uh-huh. segments, the individual segments, fill up with ink or something that can be used as ink. So you write with a piece of bamboo, and and you know it's not a cylinder. It's 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 actually you know part of a, a conical section. So one end is wider than the other. So you can flip it back and forth to make larger and smaller circles, and the entire typeface is made up of circles and arcs. Oh, so the the uh, the elephant ink um, plant is sort of like um, uh, natural felt pens, something like that, uh, or, or more like a natural uh, um, fountain pen. Hmm. Yeah, I just the the texture of of uh, of the the world you created struck me immediately. I mean, it's one of the first things. It's like you walk into a uh, a new book, or you dive into a new book, and the first thing you try to do is get a sense of the place you're in. And uh, uh, the world of Barsk is extremely, I don't know, it just sort of has this rich, musky feel to it. And it's like there's uh, a That's great, the rain. yeah, a great <laughs> deal of it. Uh, everything, everything is moist. Everything, everything is, you yeah. know, slightly mildewed, I think. Um, yeah, but it feels that way. I mean, it, it's almost something you can touch. It just feels so substantive. Thank you. I, I think part of that stems from the fact that I started this book uh, more than 25 years ago. And and as I've been, I've been telling people of late, I, I wrote the entire book um, more than 20 years ago. And, and I tried to sell it, and it was horrible. It was so bad, because I didn't know a thing about writing a novel. And mm-hmm. so I think every mistake I could make went into that book. Things that I thought were brilliant ideas and plot devices and literary tropes. Uh, and they probably, some of them probably were the first time they were done. Uh, but it, it was just an uh-huh. absolutely horrible book and I'm so relieved nobody bought it. And eventually I realized that I just, you know, I love the ideas in the book, but I didn't have, I didn't have the skill set to write, to do it justice. And I put it in a drawer, mm-hmm. put it in the trunk. So to speak, and uh, but, then I then I went about writing those million words, right, and and got better, and mm-hmm. 
sat the feet of some very brilliant authors and began to really get a hang on this craft and took it out again when an opportunity showed up and said, uh, that one, I want that book. And here we are. And uh, so you, you couldn't have kept very much of the original. I've kept all the ideas from the original and the feel of the world. I think the reason it comes through so strongly is because it's been living in my head for over two decades. And, and I, I've always found that the way to achieve verisimilitude in your writing is to have all of the backstory, have all the details, have far more, you know, dozens of times the text that's actually going to go in the book in the back of your head and let it just seep through. So that mm-hmm. the, the the sorts of things that are commonplace to your characters, they will respond to at a, on an unconscious level. They'll just because it's it's ordinary to them. You know, I I I can't stand science fiction or fantasy where where the people are uh, are agog at what should be to them everyday events, everyday phenomena. Uh, they're not the reader. They should be comfortably comfortable in their own milieu. The reader should be going, "Wow, isn't that cool?" But if your protagonist who's from that, that, that time, that place is, is also, you know, a gog, then something's wrong. Yeah. Your first assumption is that he's brain damaged. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a classic trope is to take the outsider and now he's your viewpoint character and we explore it with the outsider. Uh, but, and we, and there's some of that in bars because we take characters from that rainforest world and, and we expose them to levels of technology that, that they have given up, you know, hundreds of years ago, and, and they don't react well to, to metal and plastic. Uh, they know about it, though. I mean, it's not yeah, a complete surprise. Yeah. But uh, there's a scene where, where one, one fellow, is a, a, a very elderly font, is reminiscing that um, they once received a shipment that, by mistake, and it was full of all sorts of random objects, but, but the children played with the packing crate because they'd never seen a big plastic box before. And they thought that was the coolest thing. And that was the most plastic they'd ever experienced in their lives. Um, because, but, yeah, because it was so, such a strange thing. Right. Kids will play with the box anyway. I'm this sure. is also yeah. true. And that was a little <laughs> nod toward that, you know. Especially uh, the cat children, I expect. That's I couldn't right. get them that's out. Right. I saw, I saw something the other day online. It was a, it was the perfect cat trap. It was a open box in a beam of sunshine. <gasps> oh but, my God. Uh, you know, <laughs> Poor, poor feeling never had a chance. Yep. But, yep. uh, but so, so that I think is why you feel the richness of the world because I've been working at it for a very long time. And, and it's also why, you know, I, I hope that this isn't the only book I get to write in this setting because, you know, I, I don't want to have to start over from scratch again at that kind of level. And there's so many more stories I want to tell. I was going to ask, are there, are there sequels? There are actually right now proposals for for two more books sitting in my editor's uh, inbox. Yay! So I'm hoping he's going to look at them and go, or he's going to look at the response that Barsu is getting and say, "Well, let's sign you up." Uh, yeah, but I, Bars, think, I think it's going to be a one-book no-brainer. contract because um, they didn't know what they were getting, uh-huh. and they bought it on on a on the strength of an outline in three chapters, which they normally don't do from what they consider to be debut writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think I, I think uh, there's it's going to be a no brainer. I'm sure they'll pick up the the next two, because this one is so oh, it's so engaging. Thank you. And there's so there's uh, 
the book is about um, uh, closing the loop, speaking to the speaking to the ancestors, and the ancestors uh, reversing that against the laws of nature and 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 taking their own steps. This is like shamanism made made flesh, mm-hmm. they made very very real. You know, there, there's a fun little thing that, that I put in there, and, and some people have seen and went ooh, and other people have said no, that's not in there. But but Barsk is in in some ways a time travel story because you're going into the past by speaking to the dead, and yet so much of the book is about prophecies that were laid down 800 years before that are now coming to pass and that are controlling people's lives. So we have you know movement into the future. Mm-hmm. But it's not time travel like anybody's ever done before. Uh, and, and nobody's actually going anywhere. It's just information being exchanged back and forth. And, and that was a fun, fun thing to play with. The main characters, well, all of the characters are uplifted animals. Yes. And, um, so Barsk is or, not or, the... Or, or more accurately, the, the descendants of uplifted animals. Yeah. They, they weren't, you know, in a lab themselves. They were born no. that way. No, uh, well, because they this all have this is all I'm trying to remember the numbers. I mean, like sixty two thousand years in our future. Yeah, something like that. So I wonder what's happened to all the humans. That keep reading. Okay. That would be a spoiler. Spoiler, oh, sweetie. Okay, because I've read through. Uh, I've read through about Susan's read the whole thing, of course. I've read through about half, and so I'm just about at the point where. Um, uh, uh, you haven't seen anything. Yet. Oh where, my god! Where one of the one of the the characters is uh, this little pariah uh, of a font um, who is. Uh, but is is he a pariah or is he just too sacred? I mean, the the birth of the white elephant. You know, you know, you know I have to say. So, so Pislo is is this little abomination child. He he has all sorts of genetic defects, and and among them. He has no pigmentation, so he is an albino. Uh, and I did not intend any of the obvious jokes. Uh, he is not the white elephant, right? Uh, nor is he the elephant in the room that no one will talk about. <laughs> he kind of is, though. Yeah, he kind of well, is. But, but he is, because no one will acknowledge his existence, yes. And it's all like, these things are there, don't. and I didn't intend any of them, and no one will believe me. He's not quite pink elephants on parade. He's, He's not pink elephants on parade. I did put... I did put Dumbo in the book. And, there was a legend of oh, a that's flying right, the legend elephant. of the flying elephant. There's a reference to a uh, to a flying elephant. Yes, and and maybe one day I'll write that story. But um, and in an early draft, Smokey the Bear was in the book too. But and also was Winnie the Pooh. But uh, <laughs> but uh, they, show, my buddy. my editor just sort of looked at me and said, "No, really, no, really." No. <laughs> Sometimes an editor has to swatch. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think he made the right call there. Well, one trope but, that's very important to the book is the elephant's graveyard. Um, you know, it's the old story of elephants always know when it's their time and they go to a certain place to die. And I don't know how far that goes back, but it's a couple hundred years at least. I think so. And, and of course, it's completely false, but it's lovely folklore. Um, but it, it, it doesn't seem to be based on reality. I think it's, it's sort of like El Dorado. It's wishful thinking because... Obviously, if you could find the elephant's graveyard, you know, there's more ivory there than has ever been sold. So, yeah, uh, yeah. but, uh, it, it, it turns out to be a myth. Oh, but, uh, it, okay. uh, the elephant's graveyard, the idea of the elephant's graveyard, uh, is what starts the whole book running. But Gene, this, this book is sort of written on the, the 9090 principle, you know, that is that, um, 
the first 90% of a project will take 90% of the budget. And the and remaining a, and 10%, 10%, percent 10% will take the other, other 90% yes. of the budget. How so, familiar I am with that. Yeah, you're, you're not even through the first 90%. And, 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 <laughs> and one of the things you probably already discovered as Joral thinks he's figured out what's going on, he'll discover he's wrong and he'll say, Oh, Oh, I was so wrong. It wasn't a, it's B. And then it's not, he'll B, discover either. It's not B. And you know, I really had a lot of fun doing this to him like six times. Uh, and then when he finds out what's really going on, it's too late. And, and I won't say more cause that would be a major spoiler. spoiler you, that, sweetie. that may be a spoiler right there. Yeah, but it's, you're going to have fun with it. You won't see it coming. Okay, cool. And even knowing it's there, it's, it's, it's like telling you you're driving down the road and, and they're going to be cars on the road with you, and some of them are going to, and one of them is going to stop suddenly. You know, it's like which one? I don't know. And it <laughs> um, I'm, I'm enchanted by is is it Pizlo? Pizlo. Pizlo. I'm enchanted by Pizlo's uh, affinity and his natural connection to the planet, and uh, and the moon. Yeah, of that's Mars. not what you think it is either. <laughs> Yeah, I sort of figured it probably was, that was probably a red herring. He, this is just from his perspective, his point yeah, of view. Exactly. This is the metaphor so, that he has developed to explain what, what his gifts are because no one mm-hmm. talks to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pislow, uh, for the listeners out there who haven't read the book, and, you know, I hope we'll fix that soon. Um, among the font, uh, sex is generally considered recreational prior to marriage. Something happens when when two people bond and until that time uh, the females aren't fertile. Except every once in a great while some fluke happens and a kid gets born. And such a child is considered to be an abomination and, and like in ancient Rome is sort of left out in the public square uh, and whatever happens, happens. And the parents d- disavow you know, any knowledge of the child and, and they, they're normally so horribly mixed up in terms of their, their genetics because the same fluke that led to their being born has led to all sorts of abnormalities mm-hmm. and say, you know, rare does, does one live, you know, through the first year, uh, Pislo, when the book starts out is six and he has defied all of the odds. Uh, but he has weak eyes. He has albinism. He has no pain receptors. Um, and his parents violated custom, and they claimed him. They claimed responsibility for him. Uh, but as the book starts out, his father has been dead for about a year and a half, and his mother, you know, doesn't know how to, can't keep him in home. He, he sort of lives wildly. He's a little, little wild child that no one will talk to. And our protagonist, uh, Joral, Pislow's father was his best friend, and he takes it upon himself to try to educate the boy. And sort of serve as a surrogate mentor. And so Pizla only has two people in his entire world who speak to him. This is Joral and his mother. And the rest of the world fills in and talks to him. And tells him things he couldn't possibly know. And that's, that's where things kind of get awesome because, uh, uh, clairvoyance is not unknown to the, uh, to the font. No. No, it's not. Nor to the rest of the alliance, um, and it's. But but it doesn't normally happen so young. Yeah. But again, he is he is the exception. He has so many other things wrong with him, uh, and I, I do I do horrible things to Pislow, uh, just brutal things. Uh, but he he is the 
incurable optimist and there's only one thing that upsets him in the entire book and and it's the most horrible thing in the book uh conceptually and and he he sees it before anybody else does uh and then it's over and he's okay and i can't say any more without spoiling no, no, it for you, can't, you. Can't, but, but but i think susan's sitting there nodding her head going yep 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 so you've I written you've written a number of other books before this uh the buffalito series Yes. And yes. I think we talked about those the last time you were with us on the Event Horizon. I think so. Could have happened. Um, uh, how did you, uh, uh, how did you come up with the idea for, um, uh, exclusive collectible buffalo? <laughs> uh, I was at, uh, I don't remember how long ago this was, maybe 2007. I was, uh, doing James Gunn's, uh, summer workshop, a two week workshop for writers. And, and I, you know, I don't know how people do Clarion for six weeks because at the end of two weeks, I wanted all of those people dead. And we came <laughs> to the last day, literally the last night. The class is over. We're done. We're we're gathering in celebration. Where we're drinking, we're eating, we're having a good time. And this la- this line popped into my head and came right out of my mouth without any control. No no governor was involved. And I said, "Put down the buffalo dog and step away from the bar." <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I uh-huh. didn't know what I what it meant, and and the whole room went silent, and we're just staring at me. And I said, I don't know what that where that what that is, but I vow one day to write a story that uses that line. Uh, and about a year went by, and the idea came to me, and I remember writing the story. And the whole goal of the story was to get to the scene where I could use that line. And I remember the relief about five thousand words in when I finally had that scene and I wrote the line, and then I realized. I have to finish the story. That's not the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's almost another uh-huh. 2,000 words to get to the end of the story. And I thought it was a one-off. Uh, and it sold to uh, Warren Lapine's Absolute Magnitude, a wonderful magazine that's no longer with us. Um, and, and then I wrote a sequel. And then somebody wrote in to me and said, you know, the thing you did, that can't happen. You, you, your, your two stories are inconsistent. So I had to write another sequel in between the first two to account for that irregularity. And it just kept, they just kept coming. It was such a fun thing to play with. And there's a, there's a whole Spanish community sort of built around the, the Buffalitos. Is there? Well, yeah, where are they? Why aren't they coming well, to see me? They're, they are, <laughs> the fans know, you know, the fans they, know. they, 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 uh, you, you, I'm sure uh, the, the pup, the I'm sure the puppet lady is selling buffaloes like crazy. Well, we, we can only hope. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I I spent quite a few years going to conventions with this little plush bison on my shoulder mm-hmm. uh, because he was just so cute, and people would come up and say, "What's that?" And you know, then I'd hand him a postcard for the latest book or or novella or what have you. Yeah. Uh, and it was shameless self promotion and. Um, when was it? Uh, the Chicago, last Chicago World Con, or maybe the one before that? I, I got the idea. I, I, you know, I don't remember where I got that particular plush bison that looked so much better than all the other plush bison out there in the world. Uh, and I didn't know where to get him, where to get another one. Mm-hmm. And a fan researched all, all plush manufacturers in North America and found it. Wow. And, and, and sent me the information and we ordered about, um, Almost two dozen of them, and, and and my wife got out her, her glue gun and gave them little blue tongues, which is how you know they're buffaloes and not bison. Mm-hmm. And 
I think at, at, at some world con, I was able to wrangle the assistance of about half a dozen very attractive young female authors who spent the convention wandering around with a plush buffalito in their possession. And when people approached them, they handed them postcards uh, for this new novella uh, called Barry's Tale. Barry is the name of the, the plushie that has ridden on my shoulder all this time. And that must have worked because that got my first Nebula nomination. That's awesome. What a great story. So that was fun. And, and it worked so well, I tried it the next year, and it worked again. <laughs> the That's power great. of pretty girls. <laughs> well, and, and smart pretty girls because you said they were authors. They were. And, and it was it was a, a wonderful act of generosity. Some of them insisted on keeping the Buffalitos, though. Ah, uh-huh. Well, so it was a small price to pay. <laughs> That's pretty cool. What a, what a, what a great story. So well, when did people, you write your? Uh, I was about to say people who like the fur bear and critters are, are, you know, really like them a lot. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. not just I'm, furry fandom, but yeah, I mean, this goes back to Talking Animals, the Jungle yeah. Book, and and uh, Carl Barks, for gosh sakes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, I I knew there was furry fandom out there, but I was pretty much utterly ignorant of it. And and with uh, the release of Bars, I am discovering. Wow, it's huge. Oh yeah. It's, and and they're really doing huge. some amazing things. And you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of anthropomorphic fiction in I don't know if I can call it mainstream science fiction. Um big press science fiction. Well, the, um, only, the only other one I can think of is The Uplift War. Uh, I can't remember the author of it though. David Brin. Da- yes, that was it. David yeah, Brin. Yeah, David Brin has I think like two trilogies of Uplift novels and <laughs> and is that with whales, is it? Or- uh, uh, dolphins and, and chimpanzees and- in the in the first mm-hmm. few books, and and lots and lots of aliens. And of course, the the, the conceit is that uh, somehow we ourselves were uplifted, uh, but but whoever uplifted us isn't around anymore. So we are a wildling species because part of the galactic community in in Bryn's books, as I remember it, is you find some planet with a early but promising life form on it, and you take them in. Uh, under your wing and you act as steward for that. And as a result, as you bring them into sapience, they're sort of indentured to you for the next, you know, several hundred years or something. Uh, and when, when the galactic civilization finds us, they're looking around saying, well, well, who raised these humans? Mm-hmm. No, they couldn't have done it on their own. And then of course we get the technology to do it to other species and we become the stewards of, of, dolphins and chimps and so forth. Um, and and that's a, a, a neat direction. I sort of did the, the precise opposite of that because when you come to Barst, there are already hundreds of these these uplifted or as I like to call them, raised mammals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they don't know that's what they are. And it's, it's a done deal. You know, there are no humans. Uh, so it's just, it's just, you, you can call them aliens if you like. They might as well be aliens. But, um, I think part of what makes Barsk work is the anthropomorphic animals have an alien aspect to them. They clearly are not human beings, but at the same time, they're displaying familiar traits of the animals that they are raised from. Very much so. And, and so there's that sense of familiarity. And then you see that, you see the, these animal traits glossed onto human behavior, human-like behavior. 
And the results are, are just, you know, very entertaining and, and, and captivating, I think. And uh, some of that can be very dark. The, 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 the sociology, this isn't Duckburg. This is, these, these races are not all that friendly to each other. No, and well, and the Badgers are a fine example of that. Uh, oh, they hate everybody. They yeah, they do. Oh, well, and that's why they're, they're used as, they're, they're like a natural race of interrogators, and that's the, And everybody the, the, hates the, the font. And everybody hates the font because they're, they're, I mean, they, they don't have fur. Yeah, they're, they're it's considered like grotesque they just, by, yeah, but the it's not like they races. don't have hairs at all. They're, they're largely burnt off by, by circus owners, but to, no, no. They're no, not woolly they, mammoths either. They're, they're not furry. They are not woolly. Uh, they're in, hairy. In, in much the way that we are not furry or woolly, mm-hmm. uh, most of us. Uh, and, and then there are the ears and the trunk. So they, they are, they are physically different and they, and there's no hiding that difference. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean. You think they'd be a lot bigger than the others? No, no, I, I, you know, because you've got the, you got that whole mass square law thing going for you. And, and you have to imagine that whatever, whatever human agency did the uplift process on them, you know, didn't want these lumbering giants. Um, so we there there are but there you are got gophers on one end. Li- I'm sorry. I say you got gophers on one end and font right. on the other. They're not going to be using the same spacesuits. They're not. But they, they are, are going to be work, walking around in the same places. I guess we we have roughly two sizes. So the very small animals, the rodents and such, have have been brought up in stature, and and the very large animals like the font, like the yak, like the bears are are smaller. Uh, than than you might expect them to be smaller than their their forebears, if you would. Uh, the font are 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 wide though; they are stout, they are thick. Uh, but the there's a there's a yak that has a, a major role in the novel, and, and he's taller than Jorla. Oh, okay. uh, and he has those wicked wicked horns coming out of his head. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got to be hard to shop uh, shop for in the spacesuit store. <laughs> I, well. Probably, but fortunately, you know, he, he's a senator. He does whatever he wants to do. He can, he can afford a custom job. He can indeed. And, you know, they've had, they've had thousands, tens of thousands of years to work this out, so. Yeah, I so. Um, Are the yak the only, uh, 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 bovines? There's no buffalo walking around? We haven't seen any buffalo, and I deliberately did not put any in because I thought that would just be a little too cute. Okay. Um, so, so I left them out of the first book. Um, there were sheep. Uplifted sheep that were in the original version uh, that that so much got cut um, that that and they didn't make the cut. The original version of this novel, uh, Joral travels all over the galaxy in pursuit of of the answers that he's seeking, uh, and and we cut all that out and we kept all the action on the planet of Barsk and the space station uh, that is in uh, geosynchronous orbit above it. I th- I think I can see why uh, the decision. Would have been made to uh, to cut out all the galactic travel. Um, it just the story the story does not need that much uh, real estate. <laughs> it doesn't. But I and and the main thing that gave us uh, gave me was the ability to have Joral seen outside of his natural environment. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have some of that. We have some. Uh, we have a very short bit of flashbacks to his time in the patrol. Uh, because Joral, one of the things that makes Joral exceptional is, unlike the rest of the font, 
he, um, I should back up and, and say that all the other races in the Alliance have mandatory military service mm-hmm. in effect. And part of the agreement with the font after they were all moved to the planet of Barris and, and moved off all the other worlds was they don't have to serve. Which was fine with the font and probably. Right. And it, it was a win-win. The, yeah. the rest of the, the rest of this, uh, the races didn't want them. And, and the font said, fine, we're happy here in this world. You don't like because it rains all the time. Um, but Joral voids that and he, he, he says, I want to serve and he goes out into space. And so we see, we see the intolerance firsthand as he interacts with mm-hmm. some of these other species. Uh, and the first opportunity they have, they, 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 uh, discharge him. Uh, his, his best friend dies and, and custom demands that he be there for the ceremony. And so they put him on a fast courier and, and toss him back to bar saying, you're, you're discharged. Bye. Thanks for serving. Um, and because part of the agreement, part of the compact between Barskin and the rest of the galaxy is that in exchange for them staying on their little world and giving them all the drugs they develop, um, the rest of the galaxy will honor the font's uh, cultural uh, rules and regulations, their, their, their laws. And those start getting violated very quickly. Um and that's part of that's that's then part of the indignation of the font at one point. No. Um because you know you just don't do that. That's not done. And and the other people don't care because it's not their world and it's not their custom. Yeah, it's like uh Jarl trying to explain to um Boy, how do I explain this without giving away part of the plot? Jarl trying to explain to uh one of the off world characters that uh uh you know what? What you're trying to have me do here? This isn't how. This isn't how it's done. This is. You know, you can't do that. And the the other person says, the "Hell, I can't." <laughs> you yeah, know, I, exactly. I don't. I don't give well, a fig. <laughs> what Joral you is is marked by his people uh, mm-hmm. with a, a special mark <laughs> on his forehead that's tattooed on his forehead, and and the book makes a point of saying it, it doesn't mean he's better than anybody or smarter or more talented. And it only conveys a single a single property. He has passage. No doors can be closed to him. He can go anywhere he wants, and 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 poke his nose in anywhere. He is the ultimate busybody if he chooses to exercise that right. So, and another aspect of the compact is that no no one who is not a font can set foot on on, on soil on Barsk. Uh, they can't land on Barsk. And when find some clever ways to avoid it. There are, there are. They, 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 they play with the letter of the law rather than the spirit of it. Uh, but, um, Joral's captured. Joral's abducted. And, and he explains that he's trying to explain to his captain, you know, you can't imprison me. I can go wherever I need to go. And they go, yeah, I don't think so. He says, well, see, that can't be. You're violating the compact. And it's like, I don't care. This is, this is what sells, this is what separates the good guys from the bad guys. I mean, there'll always be bad guys. There's plenty of bad guys to go around on both sides. I think, see, all of this has nothing to, in my mind, nothing to do with what the book's about. I think what the book is about at that level is we have two characters who both believe they're absolutely right in what they're doing and that the ends always justify the means. 
and don't care who gets hurt along the way as long as their plan works. And one of them really doesn't have to worry about consequences. Well, only that she is bound by her goals. I mean, if she mm-hmm. fails, she thinks she, her, her people are lost. So she's highly motivated, but, but the other side thinks the same sort of thing for their side. And, and, you know, a world hangs in the balance and it gets ugly. Um, and there is very much the idea, and then it's an idea that Joral rejects eventually, but it's the idea that one is either a gamesman or a games piece. Hmm. And if, and if you're not happy being a piece on the board, You'd better learn to play. <laughs> You'd better learn to play. Very much so. And and Joral doesn't think the world breaks down into that kind of dichotomy. But that's what everybody else is playing by. Um, so he's he's stuck in a hard place. Um, I think the book is about friendship. I think the book is about friendship that can transcend death. Um, and <laughs> nobody else seems to see that they get caught up in in too many of the other subplots well and and but. there's there's this uh, strong undercurrent of uh, uh xenophobia or racism absolutely you know it, as, it, as it, a continuing theme intolerance is a major theme mm-hmm. prophecy is a main theme uh betrayal is a major theme uh and on and on like this uh th- there's lots of stuff in the book absolutely and i th- and what has am- amazed me you know i've been reading these reviews and They've been very positive, but sometimes people are writing, telling me what the book's about, and I go, "Really? I didn't know that." <laughs> well, um, it's the there are people they... who are convinced it is an allegory for uh, Nazis and 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 the the uh, concentration camps of World War II uh, and so forth and genocide. And I can see how they got there, but that's not what the book's about, and that and that certainly wasn't a conscious production on my part. Um, somebody else is convinced that it's all about um, the ivory trade and and um, the endangered elephants, you know, in our world. And I can see how they came by that, but I didn't put that in there. Um, so It is often said that one of the signs of great art is that the viewer brings as much to the table as the artist does. And I think you might be witnessing that effect. There may be something to that. I certainly never intended to create art, but um, this is probably as close as I've ever come. Uh, and I, I think a, a good book is an interactive experience with the reader. Uh, I didn't, and, but that's different from saying it's a projective test. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want this book to be like a turn the next page and we have a new ink blot. What do you see there? Uh, <clears throat> But uh, some people are responding to it that way. But the response overall has been has been very very positive, um, and I haven't had any neg- really any negative complaints. And I'm wa- you know I keep waiting for those those one star reviews, you know, but it hasn't happened yet. It the book, I'm sure it will the, though. It's only I don't know about I'll, that. I'll piss somebody off. I don't know about that. I the the impression that I got from reading the first few chapters is that this. Uh, this book has been uh, so finely crafted. It's, uh, to put it in cooking terms, it feels like a nice, uh, a nice curry. I'm just so. Sometimes that curry can bite. Yeah, it can. But uh, uh, it's just, it's so flavorful and so rich and so deep. 
Uh, and uh, you just can't wait to find out what happens on the next page. And you find yourself, uh, you know, a couple hundred pages later and you wonder where your afternoon went. I love hearing that. Um, the best thing I've heard so far about this book, actually, uh, an author named Jason Stanford, uh, or Stanford rather, uh, published this, uh, I think just yesterday in his review. He said, rarely do I encounter a science fiction novel that as soon as I finish reading it, I immediately begin rereading it. Ooh, that's a good one. I was just blown away. That's nice. Um, that's a nice so, thing. So yeah, yeah. That's a nice thing. And, and I'm, I'm excited for you, Gene, because you know, you, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, I, oh, the things that lie ahead for you. <laughs> I'm just, I'm right now, I'm at the, uh, uh, the scene where, uh, Pilzo, uh, Pizlo. has just, well, the book says Pilzo. No, the My book says Pilzo. I, I, I may be reading the advance, I may, I'm maybe reading the unedited arc. Uh, there may be a typo you found, but uh, yeah, okay. But he, I'm okay. I may have Pislo. Uh, let's go with Pislo. If it's a Pislo, yeah. otherwise we're done. Don't, don't <laughs> argue with the author. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I was just. Uh, I had just gotten up to the scene where Pislo um, uh, had declared himself to be uh, uh, the prophet of the seven seven moons of of uh, Bars. I, I, I love that scene. Uh, it's just, it's delightful, you know, and you were saying, uh, I mean, there's, uh, he's trying to get supplies for a trip and, uh, uh, he's, he has to go shopping, but b- according to font law, no one is allowed to make eye contact with him or acknowledge that he's even there. No. So he can take what he wants more or yeah, less. Pretty much. You ever been but shopping it, with a six year old? It doesn't occur to him <laughs> to do that. You know, he has, he's, he is a product of his society, of his culture. Uh, even if, in fact, you know, he, he is not wanted by that culture. Uh, I will tell you, I will give you a spoiler from book two, if I ever get to write book two. Uh, in book two, Pislo is a little older, and he goes traveling among the islands of Barsk. Barsk is made up of two archipelagos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Pislo does something that no other abomination has done. He travels. <laughs> Because he can, he thinks it's really cool, uh, and he is on another island in another rainforest, and he encounters another abomination—a newborn that is struggling even to breathe. Oh, and and he tries to help it, and he is calling out for the people around him to help him, and of course, no one does. And Pislo, who cannot feel pain, experiences anguish for the first time. That's book two, ladies and gentlemen, and oh, uh, who knows when that'll get written, but it is, <laughs> it is transforming wow. his low. It, it, it is the event that sets the rest of his life's course. Well, and that's, um, that's kind of, uh, a parallel to, uh, the mark on Jarl's forehead, you know, mm-hmm. the one that grants him free passage anywhere he wishes to go. <laughs> yes. Uh, Pislo has kind of the same same mark, except that he's, he's completely <laughs> invisible. He can go yes, anywhere. He can go he, anywhere and nobody, nobody will care. All doors uh, are open to him. Well, yeah. But nobody will open a door for him. Right. No. Which is why he flies through the windows in Jarl's house and such. Uh, <laughs> he gets things that's fun. Uh, it's also why, uh, when Pislo encounters, you know, some of the other races of the galaxy and, and they, they no more honor that font, uh, bit of culture than any of the other funk traditions. So they talk to Pislo. And Pislo's just amazed 
when somebody talks to him. He, somebody addresses him and he looks around going, who are you talking to? Can't be me. Because nobody talks to me. And, and of course, he's the only one there. Uh, and it just blows his mind. Um, so, you know, obviously one of the things I'm playing with here is on the, on the themes of intolerance. We have the rest of the galaxy that abhor the font. And then we have the font who are these victims of intolerance who turn around and do the same thing to one of their own. Yeah. And the great, and the great irony is that Pislo can only be seen by people who aren't font. Yeah. I hope um, he makes some friends. Well, he's already, he makes one by the end of the book. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And he talks to moons, you know, what's better than talking to moons? Well, that's true. It's when they start talking back that we were. Well, and they do. And that's the disturbing too. part. And, yeah. And that's, uh, some of the uh, some of the great motivating features of the plot early in the book come from uh, some of his some of his uh, revelations and discoveries. Yes, you know, he talks to so. the moon, um, and the moon tell, tells him things. Yes, and and um, you know, my plans for the next two books is to sort of pass the baton to Pislo, so that by book you know book book one is mostly about Joral. Mm-hmm. Book two, we even it out a bit more, and by book three, Charles is is entering retirement because the events of book one, the events of Barsk, weigh heavily on Charles at the end. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you I, I had no choice of that because you know you you reach a point where suddenly the power levels go off the chart and. Right. How do you keep it interesting? How do you rein that in? It's, yeah. it's a Superman problem. Right. And as I, I did catch the Superman reference early in the book. <laughs> there was one. Yeah. There is one. I, I did spot maybe. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, um, uh, the, I may have to edit this part out because I've I just think gone so. up. We're kind of blanky. I went blank. Blankies. You think he would have some, you, you think that the, the dog people would be friendlier because, you know, there's puppies that'll play with anybody. <laughs> well, but they're also, you know, but, and, and that's true, but a good, like, think, think of a good hunting dog. Yeah, but it's like the, that, the risen, the raised dogs here are mostly like guard dogs or, you know, they are, they are, they are, Dobermans and things, you know, they, they, they are loyal followers. Um, and, and they don't like the font at all. They think the font smell very bad. Um, which, so, so the revulsion that the other races have for the font is based largely on their appearance? Or the it's smell, that they or? are not like them. They are the other. You know, they're not like me. They're not of my tribe. And it's one thing to say, okay, I'm, I'm furry and I have a wet snout and you're furry and maybe your snout isn't so wet. But, but you know, we have a lot in common. But that guy over there, whoa. Yeah, it's he smells yeah. funny. I don't like the way his mother dresses him. You know, all these things. Well, things and with hoofs are going to be have problems with things with paws, and but well, everybody uh, has hands. Everybody has hands. All right. It's just that the font have an extra one. Yeah, in effect, in effect, and that just weirds people out. And those ears, that just weirds people out. Yeah, getting into a spacesuit is is an operation. It is yeah, because and, the ears and, have to be folded fact, up, and the trunk Joel, has to Joel be wrapped. Comments that you know he has to when he's in the patrol, he he learned to to keep his ears still rather than having them flap around because that unnerved people. He learned to keep his trunk 
you know, flat against his torso because that's freaked people out. Uh, and they still didn't care for him. Um, some, some of the races actively are repulsed by the font. Others are just, you know, like, uh, stand over there. But, you know, it's nothing personal, but, you know, you make maybe over one easy. Um, so it's not, it's not universal revulsion by any means, but, but nobody wants to give them big hugs. Uh, but there was a time prior to the founding of Barsk when, when Font wa- wandered freely throughout the galaxy and lived on other worlds, and they put an end to that. And there, I'm sure, is a reason that we discover in this book, or is it in one of the subsequent ones? To come? Not so much. I, I mean, it's the obvious reason of, you know, we, we want a scapegoat, uh-huh. and we don't like you, and we have this planet that none of us want because we all have fur, and it won't stop raining. We're not going to use this planet. So they put the font there. It is, Barsk is very much a ghetto world. And as it happened, nobody, the original survey mission that checked out Barsk stopped at, oh my God, it won't stop raining, and didn't go into the rainforest and realize the pharmacopoeia that was there. Like a rainforest on Earth. Mm-hmm. Hey, but um, different, because I mean, obviously there are other rainforests throughout, we got we got. Thousands of planets, you know, plenty of them have rainforests. But there's something special about bars, and, and and the font began churning out all these these pharmaceuticals, and they discovered the drug that lets you speak to the dead. And that that's the big MacGuffin in this book. Um, that is something that certain members of the Alliance government feels tips the balance, and 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 it's it is inconceivable to allow the font to have that power. And now I have a plot. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Awesome. Well, it's not like that rainforests on Earth are, are, you know, denuded of mammals. I mean, there's, there's... Oh, no, there's plenty of that. There's all kinds of life in the, in, in the forest there. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and, and some of it, some of it's tasty. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I found very interesting is in, with this book is people assume that, well, if you have these uplifted animals, that, that surely they're not eating other animals. Well, we do. We just, you know, the, it's the same basic rule. You go up to the animal and you say, can I eat you? And if they can answer you and say, oh, I'd rather not, then no, you don't eat other things that talk back to you. People are people, you know, some mm-hmm. of them happen to have horns or trunks or many of them have fur. Uh, but I assume on Barsk there are there's no shortage of birds, there's no shortage of insects. Um, the the ocean is probably full of fish, uh, but and and all kinds of squiggly things are are down in the mud at the the base of these rainforests. But um, but but elephants are are vegetarians, surely. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and, and a good thing too because we're in a rainforest, so. Uh, and and we see Joral eating lots of leaves and and and, and grasses and and fruit, uh, and Pislo Pislo has a voracious appetite, as, as, and I have fun with that in the book. He's a great Pislo boy. will eat your lunch and then and then ask you when we're going to lunch. <laughs> He's second breakfast. Very much so. Pislo Pislo is very much a hobbit of a character in that sense. Yes, I like that. Um, well, I, I have a lot of fun with this book. I, I'm really, really happy with it. And I go back and I read sections and I go, oh, yeah, I forgot I did that. That's nice. So where will we see you in person um, on the convention circuit in the coming few months? Oh, my gosh. Um, I am normally 
normally I would do like maybe four conventions a year. Uh, this past November, I did three just in November. Um, this month, um, next week I'll be up in Boston, uh, at Aresia. Mm-hmm. I come back. I go to the day job for a couple mornings. The, the second, the second day that night, we have a big launch here in Philadelphia. Uh, the following morning, I'm on a plane to Detroit for uh, Confusion. But before I get deep into that con, I'm taking a trip off to the side to Lansing to do a signing at a bookstore in Lansing. Um, there's a signing event for a group of tour authors in Detroit, in the Detroit area, during Confusion. I come back from that, and I start my book tour, which is all in the Research Triangle area of North Carolina. Gosh, I should well, I, I can cheat and, and and call it up on the computer. Um, <laughs> that is uh that makes for a very busy itinerary. Oh, it's crazy, and and I'm hoping to keep my day job and not lose it, not get fired. Um, the week after I get back from North Carolina, I'm in Dallas for Con DFW. I come back from that. I have about the better part of a week to catch my breath, and then I'm down in Roanoke, Virginia, for MistyCon. That takes us to the end of February. <laughs> wow. Um, well, we get the idea. Uh, How about Mexico the- for uh, the better part of a week, and then I'll be in Seattle for NorwestCon at the end of March. Oh, that's a good one. It is a good one, and I'm doing a book signing while I'm in Seattle at the University Bookstore, and before I leave the West Coast, I'll drive down to Portland and do a signing in Powell's on the 28th of March. And then several other conventions are in negotiations still. <laughs> wow. That's um, just, that be is a mind-numbing amount of travel. And if, if, uh, if, if the gods smile upon me and I get a nomination for this book, I will be at the Nebulas in May in Chicago. Um, or the Worldcon in August. Oh, we haven't gotten that far yet. Um, <laughs> I have the, uh, Annual, I think it's the 24th annual Klingon Language Conference, which will be in late July. And at the end of July, I am the special Klingon Writer Guest of Honor at Confluence in Pittsburgh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then two weeks after that is the WorldCon Mid-American. For our listeners, uh, Lawrence Schoen is the uh, founder of the Klingon Language Institute. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> and, and, of course, in October, I'm in Ohio for uh, World Fantasy. And there are, there are a number of other events that are, we're trying to figure out where I can get to, uh, who wants me. And my hope, of course, is that as more and more people discover Barsk and, and create more of a, a, a groundswell that, uh, people will want me at their conventions. I think, I think that's going to happen. I, it's, this is a really good piece of work. Well, thank you. And I good. want to see people cosplaying, you know, uplifted elephants. That would make me really happy. That could happen. That, that could happen. That's something I could do. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, well, the next step short, is, is, is to is to have them, you know, with Klingon foreheads, you know. And, mm-hmm. Oh, and, please. And and, and <laughs> bat, bat well wielding uplifted elephants, you know, to bring it all in. Right. R- riding on buffaletos, you know, bring it all <laughs> in. You know. Oh, they'd have to be some pretty, that would be a, a preposterous sight. A buffalito is not that big. No, no, they're very small. But it's maybe, about the size you know, of a... You could put straps on, on two of them and, and put one on each foot. You know, <laughs> this sounds like more of a cartoon. Roller skates. Kind of this thing. is more of a cosplay. <laughs> this is more of artwork or, or cartooning than cosplay. But Well, see, it's that kind of defeatist talk that lost us the war. <laughs> 
Lawrence Hemshone, thank you for joining us on this week's episode of The Event Horizon here on Krypton Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this evening for episode 123 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for January 9th, 2015 with your hosts, Gene Turnbow and Susan L. Fox. Our guest this evening has been Lawrence M. Schoen, back for his second visit with us, and this time we discussed his brand new release from Tor Books entitled Barsk, The Elephant's Graveyard. If you're interested in buying this book, please find the article on Barsk on the Krypton Radio website and use the handy order link from Amazon.com. This episode will air again on January 10th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at additional times throughout the coming week. See our website for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads on KryptonRadio.com and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at KryptonRadio.com. If you would like to become a patron of the Geeky Arts, you can do so for as little as $1 a month, though we do encourage higher amounts. Please visit patreon.com slash Krypton Radio to join the Krypton Radio family of patrons. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was played by Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2016 by the Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.